Welcome back to Historical Fantasy. I'm Guinevere Lee. Starting today, I will be posting an audio recording of Lita and the Samurai. Lita and the Samurai, Volume 1, by Guinevere Lee, as read by the author. Also available from Guinevere Lee, Lita and the Samurai, Volume 2, Volume 3. The Whispers of the Gods, Orope the White Snake, Pekari the Azure Fish. Visit GuineveereLee.com for more. Haiku Tsuki no yuku Yama ni kokoro o Tukuri irete Yaminaru ato no Mio ikanisen Towards the moon, to the mountains, I send My mind and spirit In the dark that comes after, what becomes of my body? Saigo Hoshi 1118-1190 Acknowledgements I have a lot of siblings, five altogether, which means there are some pretty big age differences between us. My oldest sister, Adrian, was six years older than me, which meant we didn't play together a lot. It wasn't until high school when I really got to know her. Adrian is one of those amazing people who have been through a lot of difficult times, a lot of heartache. Yet she always found a way to smile. In all my memories of Adrian, we're laughing. More than anything, I think Adrian taught me that just because life can be horrible, it doesn't mean you have to be miserable, although there's certainly nothing wrong with complaining or venting once in a while. I take that sentiment to my writing. The journey before my characters might be harrowing, but I want them to be able to find some light in the darkness. Adrian taught me that, so I want to thank her. Thanks, Adrian. Preface What you hold is a collection of the first five chapters of Lita and the Samurai. As I write this, I am preparing for Fan Expo 2018 where I hope to get the word out about this story, as well as my first published novel, Orope the White Snake. As you can imagine, I am a mix of anxiety and excitement. The idea for Lita came to me one humid August day when I wore a yukata to a Tanabata festival in Sendai. While I just enjoyed the day with my friends and went home afterwards, I imagined another girl at that same festival, innocently walking into a shrine and stepping out into Edo-era Japan. This story is about Japan, and its fantastic history and mythology. It's my love letter to the country where I lived over the span of five years. If you're curious about the history surrounding this story, then you can also check out the podcast I co-host with Noel Sajar, Historical Fantasy. We are mostly focused on the Edo era, 1603 to 1868, when this story takes place. In the future, we hope to also talk about other time periods and places. If you're curious about me and my writing, I hope you have a chance to visit my website, guinevereleigh.com. I'm on all those pesky social media platforms as well, but the website has free sample chapters, updates about book signings, release dates, and, as the cliche goes, so much more. Guinevere Lee, August 2018. Chapter 1. Tanabata. You don't question why you're running through a forest of bamboo. You don't ask how you went from being in the center of the city to an unending course of green. You don't give yourself time to think. You run. You curse your friend for convincing you to wear a stiff yukata. You rip at the flowing cotton sleeves as they snag on passing branches. You scream. You cry. You run and run and run. And you hope the man chasing you with a bow and arrow doesn't kill you. Tanabata was the festival of the stars. It was celebrated in Japan in a manner similar to Christmas. 
Decorations were hung on streets. Bamboo trees instead of pines were covered in paper ornaments. Families would come together and remember their ancestors. It was celebrated in July, except for in the northeastern city of Sendai, where it was observed during the sweltering humidity of August. Every year for three days in August, the arcade, a long shopping street covered in a glass dome ceiling, was covered in three-meter-long paper streamers called fukinagashi. They were cylindrical, topped with a large ball made of crushed paper. They looked like paper comets. They hung in colorful rows and were so long and so close together that you often couldn't see the other side. You would have to part them like a curtain, only to be greeted by another wall of fukinagashi, and another, and another. Each one was unique, a real artistic creation, and were hung for the entire three-day celebration. The arcade was crowded that morning, mostly by visiting foreigners and people from different parts of Japan who had traveled to Sendai for the famous event. They were taking pictures and fanning themselves in a vain attempt to cool off in the exhausting heat. Many young girls wore flowery cotton yukatas, the traditional Japanese summer wear, it was an excuse to get dolled up, and while they were mostly just worn by women, every so often a young couple would walk by with a sheepish-looking man wearing the darker and looser-fitting male version. Lita's Japanese friends had convinced her to wear one the week before. One of the first things she'd noticed after moving to Japan from Canada was how much Japanese women loved dressing up foreigners in yukatas. She attended a bilingual university in Sendai, Miyagi, teaching English part-time to subsidize the scholarship she was living off of. She met most of her friends from her tutoring gig, so they were always eager to hang out and practice English for free. In the weeks leading up to Tanabata, she had received more than one invitation from her friends to go shopping for yukatas. When she had relented and gone with them to try one on, they had fawned over her with compliments and even, much to her embarrassed horror, applauded and told her how beautiful she looked. She felt like a doll at the mercy of overly imaginative girls. She didn't think she looked particularly nice in one. Yukatas were not designed with her body type in mind. Lita was all curves. The stiff obi that tied around her waist bunched the fabric around her bust, and her hips were too wide, so the yukata was more prone to opening when she walked, making her feel like she'd suddenly gained 30 kilos. The first time her friends had taken her to look at yukatas, she had managed to avoid buying one. But the week before Tanabata, she had finally broken. Part of it was her friends talking about how excited they were to wear their own yukatas. And another part was that after looking through half a dozen stores, they had finally found a yukata she liked. She had tried it on, looked in the mirror, and finally didn't see a frumpy gaijin trying to squeeze into a yukata. It was red, with a pattern of large, dark pink chrysanthemum flowers. The obi was gold with sun stitched on it, the other side dark blue dotted with stars and the moon. Instead of pushing all her bits out awkwardly, the obi gave her that cylindrical shape yukatas were supposed to have, with just a hint of her curves underneath. They braided her long, sandy hair into a bun and pinned it together with a red flower ornament with dangling bells. The bells rang softly every time she moved her head, and she finally gave in. She bought geita as well, raised wooden sandals with soft red thongs to slip her foot through. To complete the look, her friends insisted she buy a bamboo bag to carry her wallet and other things in. It looked like a basket, with a cloth inset that had a flower pattern on it. None of these things were cheap, and she wasn't used to spending so much money on clothing, but she felt like she could afford to own one nice thing, and she knew she could wear it to all the festivals she would go to in the future. Tanabata began on the 7th, 
and her friends had come over early that morning to help her put her yukata on. While not as difficult to put on as a kimono, yukatas were still notoriously hard to put on by yourself if you had no idea what you were doing. They went out into the heat together, giggling and taking selfies every few steps. The obi was tight and she had to take small steps to keep the yukata from opening in the front and exposing her legs. She felt incredibly self-conscious. She could feel the stares towards her like angry accusations that she was doing it wrong. The Tanabata decoration should have been enough to take anyone's mind off of something so trivial, but she couldn't help but concentrate on the sweat running down her back. Along the walls of the arcade were all kinds of booths selling souvenirs, like paper fans and mini Tanabata decorations. There were also kiddie pools filled with toys for children to fish out. Lita's favorite proved to be the kakigori, crushed ice. They had snow cones back in Canada with two or three different flavors. But here there were so many at each booth that she had a hard time deciding which one to pick. She finally settled on matcha with milk. At the end of the arcade, the decorations branched north and south. They headed north. Now out in the open, the paper streamers blew in the wind as though they were dancing. Lita had been living there since March. She had decided to go to Japan the year before. She hadn't known any Japanese cities other than Tokyo and Kyoto, though. She didn't like big cities, so she started to Google other options. Maybe because she had been searching during the Tanabata festival, but most of the sites she had found recommended Sendai. And now, almost exactly one year later, she finally got to see Tanabata with her own eyes. And not for the first time she felt relieved she had come to Japan. She wasn't exactly sure when she knew she would have to leave Canada. She had always been desperate to leave home. She had run away a few times when she had been really young, but the fallout from those excursions were enough for her to realize she would need to bide her time. One thing she had probably always known was that if she ever wanted to truly escape him, she couldn't just leave the city or the province. She would have to get as far away as possible. And the other side of the planet was the farthest place she could think of. She used to be convinced that her father wasn't an evil man. Maybe he was troubled, or maybe she deserved the things he said and did to her. Evil? Fathers couldn't be evil. But sometimes his outbursts would come out of nowhere. Sometimes she would be watching TV and he'd come in screaming at her about the noise she was making. Or she'd be playing with her toys and he would grab her tiny shoulders and shake her, screaming in her face to clean her room. The closet became her safe place. Any closet would do. As a child, she was small and thin enough to fold herself behind a box or pile of clothes, listening to her father's heavy footsteps as he went through the house screaming her name, Summerled! She didn't like it when people called her by her full name now. It brought her back to the darkness of the closet, hearing his footsteps, thump, thump, thump. And anyway, Lita was nicer to the ears. Spending most of your childhood in a closet left you with little to do. She had to keep quiet, or else he'd find her. So she started bringing a book and a small flashlight with her. She read everything. Fantasy, romance, horror, kids' book, adult books, new novels, classic literature. Anything she could get her hands on was good. Manga was something she discovered in junior high, but it was something that had stayed with her. Something that had planted the seed. Japan. When she was 16, she finally left that house. She would bounce around from friends' couches to shelters, struggling to finish high school. All the while, her father kept looking for her. Her closets had grown bigger, but she could still hear him screaming her name and still hear the heavy footfalls. Thump, thump, thump. 
As long as she stayed in Canada, she knew she would never stop fearing he'd show up at her door one day and drag her back home like when she had run away as a child. So one day she simply started looking for universities abroad. She looked through most countries, but always kept coming back to Japan. It wasn't just the manga that drew her to Japan. She loved history. It became her major now that she was in university. Canada's history had always been somewhat lacking in her mind. The country was barely 150 years old, and its written history only went back around 500 years. That was nothing compared to the rest of the world. Her father came from a Scottish background, and her mother was French-Canadian. But she had never identified with either of those, especially since they seemed to move every two or three years. The only thing she took from her parents was her name from her father and the French language from her mother. Japan, on the other hand, had all the things she had always craved. Their history spanned over 3,000 years. Their culture was full of epic stories, beautiful and romantic artwork, heartbreak, and undeniable pride. She loved it. She wanted it. And once her mind was made up, there was no looking back. She studied Japanese for the six months leading up to her departure, all the while working as hard as she could at her part-time job, saving money and getting her paperwork processed. When she said goodbye to her friends at the airport, she feigned sadness, telling them she would be back soon, but it was the happiest day of her life. She cried as the plane took off, but only because she couldn't believe she had finally made it. She had escaped. After about two hours, her friends decided they had had enough of the humidity in the crowds and were eager to head back home. But Lita wanted to stay a little longer. There was nothing she particularly wanted to see or eat, but she had started to like wearing her yukata at the festival, had started to like the smiles she was getting from strangers she passed, had started to feel pretty and like she belonged. She just wasn't ready to go home yet. There was a nearby shrine her friend had mentioned to her, hidden down one of the alleys of the arcade, so she decided to check it out. It was south of the arcade, and she walked back through the Fukinagashi. The bells in her hair and the noise of the crowd were music to her as she waded into them. The shrine was harder to find than she had thought it would be. She was told it was down a narrow alley, but she tried three before she finally found one that led to a red tori gate. Tori were at most shrines, and were usually painted a bright red-orange. They were simple entryways, two vertical poles on either side and then two horizontal beams connecting everything on the top. There were no actual doors to go through and no walls connected to them, but going through one had always felt like stepping into a different room to her. Once through the tori, she still wound her way through another narrow alley, until she found a small courtyard that was filled with bamboo trees. The tall yellow-green shafts were so thick she couldn't see the other side of the lot, or the Shinto shrine in the middle, just the stone pathway at her feet. She stepped through, instantly feeling cooler in the shade of the green leaves that tipped the top of the bamboo shoots. The sounds of the city died away, the air seemed cleaner. She could hear the sound of cicadas crying out, a never-ending electrical whine. Her gate has clinked on the stone pathway and she thought it would be very easy to pretend in a place like this that she was in a different time, a different place, a different world altogether. The shrine was not too far from the entrance of the bamboo patch. There was a second tori, marked with kanji she didn't know how to read. On the other side of this tori was a small koi pond next to a large stone, the top concave and holding water. There were bamboo ladles next to it, and she used them to pour water over her hands and mouth to wash them as she had been taught. 
She did it less to purify herself and more to cool down from the humidity. The shrine itself was a modest building, no larger than a shed. The roof was made from dry grass and mud, and hanging from the front was a large round bell with a thick rope. Underneath the bell, resting on a porch that wound around the shrine, was a slotted box for coins. Through the shrine door she could see satsumas and small barrels of sake that had been left as an offering to the deity of the shrine, which appeared to be a statue of a man sitting cross-legged. Lita took a five-yen coin from her bamboo purse. It was gold-colored and pierced with a hole in the middle. She had been told five-yen coins were lucky, which is why they were always given as an offering at shrines. She threw the coin in, then took the thick rope in both hands, ringing the bell so it clattered above her three times. Then she clapped her hands together and... She couldn't think of a wish. She wasn't religious or spiritual. She knew these things didn't work, but she liked doing them, liked going through the routine. It made her feel connected to Japan. She just wished for happiness, but today she wanted something different. Tanabata was the time for wishes. Usually people wrote their wish on a piece of paper and hung it on a bamboo branch. What did she want? What did she truly and honestly want? She wanted to belong. She didn't just want to be an amusing afternoon for her friends or a stranger in a crowd. She wanted to be needed, loved. Love. The thought made her laugh. She opened her eyes and shrugged. Happiness, please. She went with her usual request and turned around to leave when she saw the old man. He sat cross-legged on the moss by the koi pond. She assumed he was a monk. He wore black and white robes and a conical straw hat. She saw monks sometimes in the arcade, ringing a bell and holding a collection box. She wasn't too sure about all the differences between Shintoism and Buddhism, but she had thought the monks were all Buddhists, and this shrine was definitely Shinto. Then again, there was a lot of overlap between the two religions in Japan, and she supposed someone had to take care of the shrine. Konnichiwa! Good afternoon, she said softly, bowing her head. The man was tiny, maybe the size of a child, though the robe certainly filled out his figure. He tilted his head up to look at her, and his skin was like crinkled paper. Under large, bushy white brows, he strained his eyes to see her. She couldn't help but think he looked like a cat draped in cloth and had to hold herself back from calling him kawaii. Cute. Konnichiwa, ojo-sama. He bowed his head in return. Ojo-sama was an overly formal and somewhat archaic term of respect for a young woman. She smiled her thanks and started walking back through the tori, but he held up his hand. Omachi kudasai. Please wait. She stopped and looked at him, wondering where he had even come from in the first place. Ojo-sama, can you speak Japanese? His voice was soft and he spoke slowly, which she was grateful for because she still had a hard time understanding people when they spoke too fast or excitedly. Half of her conversations with her friends were her smiling and nodding when she had no idea what was going on, both when they spoke Japanese to her and English. Ah, uh, she held up her index finger and thumb, leaving a small space between them. I speak a little. Amari wakarimasen. Amari wakarimasen was one of the first sentences she had learned to say. It literally meant, I don't understand much. But Japanese people sometimes took this to mean, I understand well, since they were used to adding far too much humility to their claims. Eh, he smiled as his eyes seemed to get a little wider. Your Japanese is excellent. Case in point. Yeah. No, it's not very good. She waved her hand back and forth in front of her face in protest, a habit she had picked up from her friends. What country do you come from? Canada. 
そうか。Oh, really? You speak English? Hi, yes. I'm an English tutor. You speak French? The two questions she got the most when she said she was Canadian. Is it always winter there? Can you speak French? Hi, it's my mother tongue. だから、おみくじをどうぞ。In that case, please take this おみくじ。He handed her a small piece of paper with a series of kanji written on it. An omikuji was a fortune you could buy at most shrines, usually with advice about how to be happy and healthy. She could recognize a few kanji written, but not enough to read it. She would ask one of her friends to translate it for her later. Domo, thanks. She took the slip and bowed as politely as she could, then tucked the paper into her purse. That tori is the wrong way, he pointed to the red tori gate she had entered from, then pointed behind the shrine to a tori she hadn't noticed before. It was smaller and made of unpainted stone. That tori is the right way. She knew he was telling her to go through the farther gate, but she wasn't sure why. She couldn't remember any other shrine having a separate entrance and exit. But there was a lot she still didn't know about Japan, and she had learned very quickly not to question and just go along with what they asked in order to be respectful. Wakarimashita, arigato gozaimasu. I understand. Thank you very much. She smiled at him and he nodded at her. Gambaremas, he whispered softly as she left. It meant do your best, though it was often used more like good luck. Did he think she would need help to find her way out of here? Strange little monk, she thought as she stepped through the gate, turning back one last time to look at him. But he was gone. Thanks for listening. Don't forget you can go to my website, guineverelee.com. That's G U E N E V E R E L E E.com. For a list of every episode and information on when each chapter will be released. Check back tomorrow for chapter two and stay healthy, everyone.